This is um, of itself from a missions organization. Um, and I wanted to look at it because the dominant religions of this portion of the globe are what we'll be looking at tonight, okay? Now this, I've heard of this 1040 window, it's called, not paid too much attention to it, but the map at the bottom of this page explains it's 10, well, it's, it's um, what, longitude, I guess? 10 and 40? It's a swath that goes through um, <clears throat> North Africa, Arabia, and the Middle East, um, and then goes into uh, China, India, um, North Korea, and Southeast Asia, okay? And these, <clears throat> uh, this portion, let me give you some statistics that are not necessarily on here. Down, by the way, if you look at the low, lower right-hand corner of that big page I gave you, there's um, the legend there to tell you um, POP is the population, evangelical Christians, uh, uh, dominant religion, and then PR is persecution ranking of all these different areas. What countries are m more probable or more fierce in their persecution of evangelical Christians? PG, PG is people groups, UPG is unreached people groups. So in each of these areas, you have a lot of different language, language groups, ethnic groups, and so forth. Um, but here's, here's some um, statistics here. This swath, that's in the uh, red on your map, includes the majority of the world's Muslims, uh, Hindus, and Buddhists, okay? Um, and there are approximately uh, 5.3 billion people um, in over 8,000 individual people groups that live in this red swath. Um, and of these people groups, 70% of them are considered unreached, meaning with the gospel. Never heard the gospel, never had it preached to them, uh, don't know hardly anything about it. Um, and that turns out then to be uh, a little over 3 billion. <coughs> 3.3, .3 really. Um, there's several considerations um, just to mention here quickly. There's a historical and biblical significance to this swath, especially the western end of it. The western end of it, um, which would be the you know Palestinian and then Iran, Iraq, Middle East, kind of northern Middle East, is where, as far as we know, the Garden of Eden was. And <clears throat> it's where the Tower of Babel was. Two great judgment events in the early history of the world, the flood, of course, um, and the repopulation in that same area, and then the Tower of Babel, which was a second judgment by God 
to scatter everyone that they, he said that they'll, these aren't God's words, but I'm paraphrasing. They're going to pool their ignorance or pool their depravity. And when you, all, all you have to do, and I know rural areas are not pure, but you can look at large centers of population and they, they pool their depravity. And it's just wicked. Um, God saw that and he said that. He said they've put their heads and hearts together and nothing will be denied of what they try to pull off. And they were saying, we're going to build a tower to heaven. It was going to be something to worship and a worship place. And God said, well, we're going to have to put a stop to it. Rather than drowning them all like he did or some other means, <clears throat> he did a fairly simple thing and confounded their language. So that when they showed up for work the next morning at the Tower of Babel, Everybody had a different word for hammer, for brick, for, you know. And so they, they uh, gathered together with those of like language and separated. And there you have the population and the scattering uh, over the world. That occurred in this swath. And very much of the population that spread was in this initially, this um, swath of property. This, these countries and this band on the globe are the, um, the most unreached cities and um, countries are concentrated here from the entire rest of the world. There are more people here unreached, more people groups, more countries and governments um, where they've never heard the gospel. Okay. Um, there's three religions here. I think I, maybe I mentioned that already. They dominate that entire area, and that's Islam and Hindu and Buddhist are the three religions, and this is their main stomping grounds. Okay? <clears throat> um, it also, and I wonder, I kind of think there's a link here but the greatest concentration of the globe's poorest economically are located in this swath. I think it has, I think there's a link with um, their belief system. They, they have extreme caste system where you have the, at least in say Hinduism, you have the Brahmins which are at the top, you have the untouchables that are down here. I've seen, I've seen videos of every single morning in these massive cities, open um, big wagons or, or trucks um, that they go every morning and throw the bodies of the untouchables who just sleep on the streets into these wagons they died overnight. Exposure, starvation, whatever else. Um, they won't kill, uh, um, in, like in India, they won't exterminate vermin, so they spoil the piles of grain and the silos of grain and the storage of food um, because of their whole reincarnation business and sacredness of different animals. Um, they'll take milk from their babies and give it to cobras. Uh, they're 
worshiped. So uh, there's a link between what they believe and I think the poverty that they have to endure. Um, <clears throat> probably the last thing we could say is this area has generally, about 200 years ago, is the, would be the quote modern push of missions. Um, the Methodist revival, 1700s, and um, was largely responsible for just revival in general that followed wherever the British Empire was, which, re, re, if you remember, the statement was always made uh, then, the sun never sets on the British Empire because they had countries literally all around the world that they um, colonized. So, <clears throat> um, there was, you know, there was a spread of the gospel, but it was mostly um, coastlines. Early missionary endeavors were like the western, especially western coast of Africa, some of the eastern coast. Um, but there were, there were not a lot, yet some, but not a lot of concerted efforts to get into the inlands and penetrate into large countries' interiors. Now there's, there's been, and I, couldn't, I can't tell you how many years, several decades, more of a concentration on this swath of red on the map. Um, we have, and it's a different kind of evangelism and missions work. It's somewhat um, subdued and a bit undercover. And in most of these countries, you have to go there as something else. I mean, you sure don't say, I'm a Protestant missionary and I'm, I'm coming to wherever, okay? Um, you have to come there as a teacher willing to teach English or labor in something else or um, some way, maybe you're in agriculture and you, you can teach farming, um, new advances in farming. Um, well drilling is a big way to get into some of these countries to provide water um, because they're quite hostile, of course, to Christianity. And so there's different strategies that have to be used to try to even get into these countries. And there are people we support as a church that ask us. We might say vaguely, so-and-so, you know, we, we support through our missions giving um, a couple will sometimes not even, at their request, give their name. Uh, we know them, but we don't broadcast it, and we don't say what country they're in. Um, because you, you just, they don't want to be tracked down and found out for what they're, um, <clears throat> they, we, I know a guy that in the last few years, um, been a minister, for, in fact, he retired. He was old enough to retire from the pastorate, but went as a, as a missionary to China. Um, he uh, gave up his ministerial credentials, severed all relationships with the denomination, you know, burned every bridge, at least 
um, informationally so that no one could track the Chinese couldn't do research on him and find out, hey, listen, this guy is an ordained minister with such and such church or denomination, and he's lying if he says he's over here only to teach English. Um, so this is a different day in that sense um, of missions strategy, I guess you'd say. Um, I don't want to obviously take the time to look at everyone. This is a calendar that people can pray through, um, which is not, I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to forbid you to do that, but that's not why I gave it to you. It's, we can just look at some of these in the top row. Um, the f Number four, Japan. Population of 120, almost 124 million. Evangelical Christians, 0 0.57. And their major, their dominant religion is Buddhism, or a, a second was Shinto, Shintoism. Um, and then <clears throat> Saudi Arabia over number five on the bottom, um, population of over 36 million, point, uh, 0 0.53 Christians, <clears throat> Islam. Um, and you look at all the rest of these, and... Um, there's not a lot of Christianity in any of them, and some of them, of course, we don't know for sure. We, we don't know about China. We don't know anything about North Korea. We know it's very small, um, but we don't know how small or how, how large. Um, reports that come out of these countries are that there's way more than officially is acknowledged um, because of the very fact they have to be underground. So... Anyway, there's a bunch of information on that you can just look at if you want. But um, this area then, we looked at Islam last week, but this whole swath then, we'll try to look tonight at both Hinduism and Buddhism, um, which covers this 1040 section um, of the globe. Okay? Any questions on just how to figure this out. Everybody kind of understand. <clears throat> okay. Um, I've told you, I've used the term before uh, that a sermon or a class or something um, is rather than being a revelation, it's a rambulation, okay? You just ramble all over the place. That's what you're in for tonight, okay? Because I gotta tell you, I don't believe, and obviously I'm being facetious, I don't think God himself can figure out Hinduism and Buddhism, okay? Uh, he's never figured it out. Maybe he's still trying to, I don't know. Just one little thing ahead of getting into this. Hinduism alone is estimated to have 33 million gods. Now, I can't get my mind around that. Okay? But, so how do you teach on that? Um, what, what in the world do we even, um, how do we deal with that? Um, let me just maybe say this to start with, and, and if um, you want to contribute, I'd appreciate it. 
in philosophy, and I believe as well as religion, I'm not speaking of just Christianity, any religion, and religion is just some kind of set of beliefs, they can all be false, but a religion, a set of beliefs, and a set of practices that flow from those beliefs, and um, some form of morality, even if it's bad, but some form of morality that you're to live by if indeed you believe in this particular set of beliefs, okay? Everyone has their own ritual, some very primitive, some are so complex you can't figure them out, like Hinduism. But at any rate, there are three fundamental questions, at least in philosophy, that have always been um, well considered foundational questions. They're very simple, but they're profound. Where did I come from? What's my purpose here? Why am I here? Where am I going? What's my origin? What's my purpose? What's my destiny? And those are the kinds of fundamental questions that the human heart, under the unseen um, hand of God, the human heart searches for that. Now it takes a lot of different forms, um, but there is something, in fact, there are what are called the five proofs for the existence of God in, in Christian philosophical thinking. And I can't remember all of them. I, I, I majored in philosophy, but I don't remember them. Um, but anyway, one of them is called the universal moral um, aspect of humanity. You can't go anywhere, even to a completely untouched tribe somewhere, never had any contact with the outside world. They will have some primitive ideas about supernatural power, superhuman natural being, some sort of a god. They will have certain rituals. They will even consecrate, and I don't care if it's an old stump, which is sometimes really what they do. They will consecrate some stump in the jungle and pick somebody out of the tribe to be the keeper of the stump. And that stump is considered holy and only the guy they picked um, out of the tribe gets to go there and, you know, kill a goat or whatever. Um, they're a mess. <laughs> But all of them, all of these primitive to more sophisticated religions have some order to them and some basic assumptions. There is a supreme being of some kind. It may be, some, uh, it may be animism, which God is the rocks, the trees, the waterfall, all that. It may be, you know, that's pantheism. It may be polytheism, hundreds of gods. Thousands. Um, but you also have a, a murky idea that these gods, and usually there's a supreme god even if they have a lot of other gods, 
but there's something about these gods that they need to be, you can't disregard them. You either are, they are either pleased with you or they're angry with you. And so you have to take certain measures to make sure that they are pleased. And it usually takes the form of some kinds of offerings, you know, some kind of sacrifices or whatever. Um, and you call on those gods to help you with the big events of life. Birth, death, uh, arrival of, you know, your own birth, but arrival of children, um, death of relatives, natural disasters, uh, planting and harvesting, and, you know, all those kinds of things, they, there's an innate belief that those gods have to be appealed to, pleased, so they will help with these major life events, and they will in some way protect you from all of these things, okay? Um, it's amazing how completely wacky it can get, yet still retain the basic ideas that aren't far off, that we are little, something out here is big, that thing that's big, whatever he, she, it is, I have an obligation to please them, obey them with certain practices and rituals, or they'll be angry and plague me. Um, if I want peace and joy and happiness and good crops, I gotta please them. Um, very rough, primitive ideas, but they're there. So, in looking at world religions, every one of them have these basic um, concepts, okay? I thought I would just real briefly, we'll just kind of mention um, a th not only Buddhism and Hinduism, but um, ancient Egypt, which we interact with in the scriptures in the book of um, Genesis and mostly, of course, Exodus, the slavery of Israel and all the gods of Egypt. They also had um, a pantheon. The Romans did, the Greeks did, most of them had a pantheon, meaning multiple gods and an arrangement of multiple gods. And here's another thing that's very interesting, but it makes sense. God created the true God in the true religion, the worship of the Most High God. He created us in His image and likeness and demands that we reflect His image and His likeness. False religions are a 180 degree flip. We create gods in our image and likeness and they are gods who practice the worst of what we do. If you, even in, in high school, if you had to read, um, you know, the Odyssey or whatever, um, you know that the Roman gods, the Greek gods, all these different gods are adulterous and incestuous and murdering and just all kinds of stuff. That's because the hearts that created them are creating them in this image. Um, and so, obviously... A 
human-oriented or human-originated religion is doomed to rise no higher than this. And that's what you end up with. Okay, so once, once you reject the true God. Egypt had <clears throat> lots of gods, and I'm not going to go through um, the bulk of them. Of course, they believed, um, but like most gods, or most religions, they had different tiers of gods, different responsibilities for the gods. There was an ultimate god, usually, and then, I guess, you know, little gods, okay? Um, Pharaoh was considered deity. An, a second great god next to Pharaoh was the sun, Ra. Uh, many of the Pharaoh's names had R-A in them. Then they got down to, you know, little flunky gods, okay? Um, you know, they, these were the, the ran for dog catcher kind of thing. Um, but they had gods, literally, they had gods that controlled insects, uh, storms, all kinds of bugs, fish, the Nile River. And in order, enough to convince the Egyptians, God picked out every single one of those gods and the plagues were not random by any means. Every one of the plagues were aimed squarely at a particular god that the Egyptians worshipped who was, whose sole duty was protect them from whatever God did to them <laughs> in the plagues. Um, so the frogs and the lice and the gnats and the Nile River turning to blood and killing all the fish. The, and, and you'll notice too that God works from, he starts with the flunkies and works his way up to, what's the second? To the last plague. Blotting out the sun for three days. They worshiped the sun god. So for three days it said nobody even left their chair. It was so dark nobody could go anywhere. And then, of course, the final one was Pharaoh's son and the firstborn of everyone, which had to do also with fertility, creativity, gods, bringing life into the world. And so he, that, of course, was the last straw for them, and they let the Israelites go. <clears throat> but um, that was... That's symbolic. The Egyptians um, were not a lot different than all the other. There's only so many crazy religions you can cook up. So at any rate, um, we'll make quick work of the Egyptians. Now, <clears throat> um, Hinduism. What do you know about Hinduism? Uh, I know virtually nothing after reading for a couple days. Um, anybody know more than that? Yeah. And part of it too has to do with get being one with consciousness of the of there's consciousness. Some of this I'm going to read for you. 
just to, just to um, in fact, I'll read a few, few um, sentences here. Hinduism is the one again with roughly uh, 33 million gods. Now, I don't know who counted those, but at any rate, um, Hinduism is the conviction that the soul or the self is subject to samsara. Everybody know what that is? I haven't got a clue. Except it's translated, in other words, transmigration through many forms of incarnation. Okay? Um, now, um, held together with this belief is another one, karma. Most of us use the word or have heard the word karma, but we don't really, we sort of think we know what it means. And you'll see, if you ever watch, you know, sometimes you'll see just videos on your phone or whatever of somebody who cuts in front of somebody else in a road trade deal, and then a mile down the road, they flip their truck three times. And it, they'll say, you know, karma, you know, they, they got what they had coming. That's sort of what it means. But, this transmigration through incarnation um, is affected by karma, okay? Um, meaning that the, the badness in your previous lives you carry in to this next reincarnation, okay? So, you're not sure what you may come back as. Part of the reincarnation and the repeated incarnations is, can be involved with punishment for previous wrongs. So if you come back into the world, um, I think if you'd come back into the world as a cow, um, that would be an honor because cows are sacred I uh, I don't know about I don't know about other other animals um, but if you come back in a degraded position then that's due to karma that's punishment for previous things that you did okay um, one of the things I didn't really understand about either Hinduism or Buddhism which have a lot in common is the aim is not <clears throat> to continue to go through reincarnation, reincarnation after reincarnation until you come back as a Brahmin, uh, uh, you know, a superior human upper caste or some, a cow, which is sacred, I guess. The purpose of uh, reincarnations are really Punishment, chastisement, um, teaching you until you get to the place where you know you no longer, you weary of re being reincarnated and you, you give up on this world and you don't want to be in this world anymore. Somewhere in there, you are connected with consciousness, which I haven't got any idea what that means. I don't think they do either. But when you are immersed in consciousness, then your reincarnation 
squirrel cage stops and you achieve nirvana and you're there that's heaven to them um, complete joining of consciousness with something okay so I always thought that you, you were on this treadmill and you hope to come back as a better monkey than the last time and you, you know keep working your way up but you're supposed to work to where you tire of this world and the, the material world, and then you're released from being reincarnated, and you go to nirvana. That's um, Hinduism. Buddhism has a different term for it. Sometimes it's just called, um, it's a different spelling of Buddha, but I don't get it. Um, but <clears throat> at any rate, let's see. So, yeah. Yeah. The corrupted mind and everything. Um, you know, the, the descriptions they have, like Nirvana and all the other things, and, you know, the reincarnation thing, I think some of these people must have been on mind altering drugs. Seriously. Why? Well, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't. Most of them, most of them, most of those religions involve, well, it's even like you know, Native Americans here, peyote. Um, a lot of them, mind altering um, drugs, are part of their worship. But another thing I think we have to acknowledge is, you know, Paul said when he was talking about. What fellowship has light with darkness? Don't be going to the heathen temples and participating in their sacred meals and all that. Because he said, he said, remember, they offer their sacrifices to demons. So I don't think either we could, we, we surely can attribute a lot of this, I think, to mind-altering stuff. But we can't factor out demonic uh, these religions are demonic. Yeah. Pardon me? Well, I hate to be, you know, sound hard nose, but um, the scripture tells us that, pardon me? No, yeah. Stop interrupting with the Bible. Um, <laughs> if whatever you, one verse, you know, John said, Jesus is the light that lights every man that comes into the world. Paul said, there is so much evidence of God and his nature and his attributes in creation that he said, they are without excuse. And I know it sounds, you think, well, man, alive, they never knew any different. Remember this, people who, all infants below the age of accountability, I don't care if they're born Hindu or whoever, they're covered by the atonement. Whenever they reach in their individual case, 
the age of accountability, which is they have enough moral light from what all of Christianity virtually teaches, prevenient grace, or the grace that goes before conversion, the grace that is designed to dimly lighten our hearts, give us a conscience and an innate sense. All these religions, every one of them, false as they are, crazy as they might be, prove the existence of a supreme being, of a God, creation, all of that. It, frankly, the sad fact, too, is none of these pagan religions deny creation. None of them teach evolution. It's just wicked, fallen, former Christians, you know, nation, that would go that route. But there's enough light. It gets, obviously, it gets perverted. But in some way, um, several different ways. One, sticking with Paul, he said, their own hearts are enlightened by the marvels of creation. In addition to that, um, I know too many stories, read too many, of people who, whose hearts were hungry, didn't know, what it, didn't know anything, but had a humble, teachable um, spirit whom God led to somebody who could tell them about the gospel. When I was um, serving as a superintendent in our denomination back in Indiana, I had churches in Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Kentucky, um, and we would have an annual family camp, and we leased or rented for a week the campus of Taylor University back in Indiana. Um, and that's where we would go. Well, they had a museum there um, from, I don't know, early, early 1900s, like 1906 or something, of a guy that I grew up as a little kid reading a book about him and seeing an old black and white movie that they made about him. His name was Sammy Morris. I can't remember which. Somewhere in the interior of Africa, this little boy was captured by another neighboring tribe as a slave boy. And he escaped. I don't know how long he was with this other group, um, but I think, the, I think the name of the movie and maybe the books, Angel in Ebony. Um, but at any rate, he escaped. Didn't have any idea where he was. I think he was like 10 when he escaped. And his testimony was that going through the jungle, a light just shined down through the trees and he followed it. And he just kept following it. And it led straight to a Methodist missionary com, um, compound, bunch of missionaries from America. And they took him in, put him in the school. He ended up getting converted. And he clearly had abilities, and he, he wanted to return to his tribe and evangelize them. And so these missionaries coordinated with America. And Taylor University um, 
was, I think, nominally is still affiliated with the Methodist denomination, but it was founded by Methodists and so forth. So they raised money and they sent Sammy Morris over to um, Fort Wayne, near Fort Wayne, Indiana, to the campus of Taylor University to study to be a minister. I had a, my advisor in seminary um, was, I don't know, in seminary, he's probably mid-70s or later, but he went to Taylor, clear back in the 40s, okay, when the memory and the stories of Sammy Morris were fresh. And he would get up, they would ask him to speak, and he'd get up in chapel. And he had a, um, a quiet, humble spirit, and would just pray that, that, you know, God would come in his presence into the chapel. There was no furor, no running the aisles, no wackiness at all. God would settle down. Kids would go come to the altar and pray. And I've heard these stories from, uh, I have a brother, brother-in-law and sister retired from the ministry who live in Upland where Taylor University is. Anyway, the farmers around there would be, they began to, everything in Indiana is laid out in squares you know, a mile square. They would jog a mile, go a mile, jog back a mile, so they wouldn't have to drive by the chapel, which was pretty close to the road, because they'd get under such conviction that some of them said they'd, they, they had to stop their horses, and they'd get out and kneel down by the wheel of the wagon and ask God to forgive them and save them. Um, it was a nationally known revivals that they had there and I don't understand God's wisdom and I don't have to but the climate in Indiana will kill you um, I don't care how bad it is here it's not really colder it's just worse I don't know back there partly because in Indiana but anyway he contracted pneumonia and of course they didn't have any that was before penicillin or anything else and he died, and he's buried there uh, on the campus. He never made it back. But there was a, there was a Methodist bishop um, by the name of Stephen, man, I can't remember his last name now, but he's written some books that I have. But anyway, there was a Methodist bishop that um, he trapped, Sammy Morris was invited to go someplace and he, when he came back this Methodist bishop picked him up from the boat and put him up in his carriage and this bishop was kind of cold in his heart and he wasn't happy with where he was at spiritually and it, he says in the book I've read about himself he said after several miles with Sammy Morris sitting next to him talking to him about fully loving God with your whole, whole heart and being full of his grace and spirit, that this Methodist bishop was kneeling on the floor of the carriage on the seat asking God to do something to him that this, as he said, and this is a word he used, this poor darky told him about it. He said, I got to have what he's got. Um, 
Why did I tell all that? Um, oh, just how God, God's not limited to how he can get light to some soul. If he has to shine a light down through the jungle and lead a 10-year-old kid for who knows how many miles and how many days, so that's no problem to God. Yeah. I can't re- you guys remember some of you would remember remember Sandra Knopp who used to live here in Gillette and she went to our church and she had been 20 years a missionary in Mali now Mali is still a mess you'll see it in the papers every once in a while um, French former French colony um, it's a lot of Christians in the southern part but Islam in the northern part and it's really been a turmoil but she was a missionary there for 20 years she said something similar there was an imam in a village somewhere near where she was stationed at and she went to this village and well I guess the this imam invited her kind of secretly um, because he didn't want to be caught talking to the missionary anyway she went and talked to him a number of times gave him a bible shared the gospel with him and when he he told her early on in the conversations that you're describing to me he said that man that i saw in a dream and that she, she shared, and I, I know quite a few missionaries that are in countries right now that are Islamic, who say that is common. People have dreams that some Jesus comes to them and talks to them in their dreams. Um, God's not, you know, he's not up there thinking, how in the world am I going to get the light to them? He can probably figure it out. Um, but anyway... So back to the question. I obviously can't declare every Hindu or every whoever, you know, thus saith Dan, they're going to heaven, he's not. I trust a wise judge, heart-knowing God, who knows whether their heart was hungry, whether they were seeking something beyond what they knew, I don't know. but we, at the same time, we, not in, the, in a false kind of compassion, we can't become universalists. That everybody that is, just doesn't chop his neighbor's head off, he's a good guy, so he's going to heaven. Um, we, we can't do that. So then, you have not only God and his, his omnipot- or om, uh, omnipresence everywhere, but then you have the Christian world. What is our part in getting the gospel to people who haven't heard? 
And there's where our responsibility comes in. If we can't go, the vast majority of us can't go ourselves, but we can support and send others. So anyway, um, let me read just a little more here. Um, let's see. <clears throat> as long as the soul mistakes this phenomenal world for reality and clings to existence in it, it is doomed to suffer endless births and deaths. The various Indian, mean India Indian, traditions offer ways in which to attain release or liberation from the misery of subjection to the process of cosmic time. Are you still with me and completely understand and enjoy this? Um, Basically, this liberation consists in the soul's effective apprehension of its essential unity with Brahman, which is the absolute or supreme reality, and merges with it. Okay? <laughs> I don't know what in the world. Um, but at any rate, that's where you're, you end up separating from the world. You die and you go to Nirvana. There are, there are unbelievably complex, minute, detailed little rituals for how you die and what the family does with a dying family member. I guess you cannot die in a bed. You have to die on the dirt, on the ground. And so they watch over their loved one until they believe that they're very near their last breaths. They put them on the ground. They pour, if they, they, you have to get it, they pour sacred water a little bit into their mouths from the Ganges River, which if you had any hope of surviving, that would kill you. The Ganges is the filthiest river anywhere. Okay, but everybody, you've got to go bathe in the Ganges. When you die then, they take them to um, cremation. Um, it, I guess children are not cremated, but everybody else is. And the, they're in funeral pyres that are down by the Ganges River. Ashes are thrown into the Ganges. Um, and you make your flight to consciousness or whatever and you're there forever and you're not reincarnated anymore okay um, I'm not going to spend much time on Buddhism because this is confusing as um, it just is more um, it's a little simpler but they have the same things of karma they have the same thing of reincarnation so it kind of came from the same root um, but just territorially Buddhism is more in China, even though, you know, it's um, supposedly anti-religion. Buddhism would still be considered the dominant religion. And Buddhism is heavy in Japan. It's heavy down, you know, Vietnam, Southeast Asia, Thailand, in through there. Uh, Hinduism is mostly India. And, you, you know, we know, we, we know that there's, you have these three religions. Um, Hindus and Buddhists don't usually get too mad at each other but it's either Hindus and Islam or uh, Buddhists and Islam 
mostly Hindus in Islam, Pakistan and India, that are slaughtering each other all the time. They'll riot and all kinds of stuff. Um, they're mortal um, enemies. Anyway, um, Buddhism is not a lot different than um, only I think it's just slightly maybe less involved um, than Hindu is, uh, in Hinduism is. Um, same thing with the Buddhists. They, their goal is to finally um, escape the clutches of this world and the endless round of reincarnation and go to uh, nirvana. Okay. Um, the only other thing I'd add here is in both of these cases also, there is a form of a judgment after you die. And you are weighed, um, the, the gods determine whether you go to their version of hell. And the, the, both Hinduism and Buddhism have a, a version of hell. It's a bad place, it's dark, it's um, diseased, it's miserable, you know. Um, and so they, even again, hugely twisted, they have these fundamental ideas. There is a judgment. You're judged now on your, your deeds and how you did the rituals. Really, their worship is you've got to perform all these rituals, which, of which there are thousands. Um, how you eat, how you bathe. Um, I mean, everything. It's, it, it would be the most constricting kind of thing you would be almost always. It's kind of like they say about the IRS. Okay, we have 120,000 pages of IRS regulations. Somewhere, some, each day, some of us probably commit three felonies and don't even know it, okay? Um, but this is kind of like the IRS. I mean, you can't live without knowing you violated some kind of a ritual and drank out of the wrong left hand or something. So, um, but that's how you attain favor of, of the gods. Okay. All right. Um, I'm going to quit. Any any um, any questions? Yeah. How do they believe the earth was created? I don't know. <laughs> um, they they all have creation um, stories, and. Um, even up into, well, then you move a little bit into more, I guess you'd say, more recent religions, like in, in Iran, Iraq, the Persians, and then you get into the Greeks and the Romans and all that. Every Hammurabi, those people, all, all of them had, um, and not only did they have creation stories, different gods creating this and that, they also, almost every one of them, have flood stories. That's interesting. Um, I think I mentioned you, maybe. Um, when we were living, when I was in Portland going to seminary, Liz was finishing her uh, um, Bachelor's of Science at Portland State. <clears throat> and 
Pacific Northwest history was something she had to take. And there was a book that she uh, had as a textbook, and I read it. Fascinating. It was just called Flood Legends of the Pacific Northwest Indian Tribes. Okay? And it was, again, somewhat twisted. And, but the basics were there. Um, everybody was bad except for one guy and his wife. Some of them had kids, some of them didn't have kids in the story. But a man and his wife, the one I remember was reading about the, who was Siskiyou, I think it is, um, tribe, which is down on the Oregon-California border. It's not far from Mount Shasta. And every time we go from Portland down to Sacramento to visit her family, we, you know, you go right by Mount Shasta. And so that flood legend of that tribe dealt with Mount Shasta. And there was a good guy and his wife, and everybody else was bad. And he made a dugout canoe, and he tied it to the top of Mount Shasta. And a flood came and drowned everybody except for them because they were in this dugout canoe. Um, didn't say anything. They didn't have much about animals or anything like that. Um, but it was interesting. All the way up Seattle, you know, and down the Oregon coast into California, all of these different tribes with some differences had flood legends. Um, now, the flood happened quite a ways away from there. Um, I think then that brings up how they how did they get there? Well, you have Tower of Babel. And I think you have uh, probably a, a land bridge or something across Alaska, or who knows? Because you get that mystery verse after the flood, where the guy was named Peleg, and it says, "In his days, the earth was divided." Um, I don't know if that's referring to post-flood destruction um, because massive amounts of water, lava, and everything else came up during the flood. I can't believe, well, Peter said the world that then was has been destroyed by the flood. So it doesn't look today like it looked then. So anyway, uh, a lot of those things I, I don't understand, but um, it's fascinating um, how in some ways different, but the same. You've got legends um, everywhere you go. Okay, anything else before we go? We'll get out before the kids do. Okay, I'm not sure what we'll do next week, um, but I kind of wanted to get through these two tonight just because I can't figure them out. So, <clears throat> okay. Let's bow our heads. We'll pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. What a privilege it is we have the Bible. And we are in a country as bad as we're becoming where we have access to your word and we yet have freedom to meet and worship. And we're just grateful, Lord, that we, we could have easily been born in some of these countries where it's just darkness. And... So I thank you for the privileges that we have. And I do pray, too, that you would help us not forget that we, we have an obligation, and whatever our part is to be, 
to get the gospel to people who don't have it. So help us toward that end too, I pray. Go with us and keep us safe, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen.